All right, friends, welcome back to the show today. It is my honor to be joined by Gail Song Bantam and Brian Bantam. How are y'all today? Doing good. good, Luke. Good to be on here. It is an honor uh, to be talking to the authors of a book entitled uh, Choosing Us. The irony, though, is that you guys have chosen in your home to separate your offices and have two separate working spaces. And so even though I'm talking to both of you from the same house, you're in two different computers. Is that a sign of a strong marriage or should I be worried about this? I think it's a sign of a, a centered marriage. We know what we need mm-hmm. and we're good with mm-hmm. it. Yeah, there's, there's, no, there's no need for the other to kind of put on airs or pretend. We, mm-hmm. we know exactly what we need. I have my clutter. She has mm-hmm. her peace. We operate in our gifts, and mm-hmm. you know, and then we join when we when we're ready. Mm-hmm. Do you think your marriage is better or worse, or did you at some point f- think about killing each other during the process of writing a book about marriage together? <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually looking at Brian, thinking, "Who's going to tell this story?" Um, but yeah, when, when we decided to finally land on writing a book together and then marriage specifically, it was, it was a couple months before the pandemic. Oh yeah. So not only did we write a book together on marriage, we wrote it during a pandemic when all three of our older sons also moved back home and we were working together writing together, trying to navigate how this is all going to go down. And um, mm-hmm. our first walk together, when we were we were like, let's go on a walk and let's navigate how we're going to write this thing. And um, we actually just fought on the walk and um, just ended up walking home half of it in silence because we couldn't figure it out. <laughs> at at one point, so, I might I might have yelled at her, I don't work for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that that all adds up to me. Well, and then right? I mean, and and, when, and on top of all of that, we also got a puppy, mm-hmm. and so it just so the whole the the whole process actually just exacerbated. I think all of, you know, like every they always say, like you know, you just have the same fight over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so this is having the same fight, but inside of a tiny little box with lots of shards and animals mm-hmm. and people all stuffed into the box with you at the same time. Yeah, um, it, it seems that if you guys could survive writing a book together while your kids are home, your, your adult kids are home and uh, you have a puppy, it seems like that should be on the, like the front cover of the book. Like we survived this, <laughs> therefore we are marriage experts. That, that, yeah, I feel like that could be the revised version. Yeah. We survived. I mean, Gail, I mean, yeah, like you're a pastor, like that's important. Brian, like you got a PhD, like that's like important. But you guys survived writing a book together during a pandemic at home with three kids. Like that's like, that's all you need. I mean, it is. Much. But the truth is, the truth is Brian and I, Brian's a professor of theology. Mm-hmm. I am a pastor. Our ministry, our lives, our work and our calling just intersect a lot in general. And mm-hmm. I think this book is, in a sense, an overflow of what we already do together, having mm-hmm. um, couples, single folk, church folks, students over at the house, mentoring. So in, in some ways, yes, there was tension. There was um, trying to navigate how do we write a book together. But at the core of it, the content is really things that we that we do. This is at the core of who we are. 
and what we're passionate about. And yeah. and the the beautiful thing about it is whenever we start to really get pissed at each other, you know, we're and then we're revising a chapter, you kind of get reminded like, oh, I actually wrote this, so maybe I should actually do it in this moment. Um, yeah. Maybe I should actually. And then I think, but then I think that's the other thing is that you read it and you realize, oh, wait a second, we have been through some stuff, um, and yeah. and we've done this before. This is not any more difficult than anything that anything else that we've done. Um, so I think in that way, in a really odd way, by the time you go back and you look and we re we've reread it now, you know, multiple times, um, it actually just kind of, it reminds me of just how strong we've been, even in the midst of kind of being through all that stuff. So it, it is a, it is a nice reminder, although it's always annoying when she tries to quote, quote passages at me to prove something yeah, that, that, that I wrote. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, years ago, one of the, the ground rules that uh, my wife and I agreed to, it was my proposal and she accepted it, was you can't use my sermons against me. Like you, That's just not fair. Like You can't preach my sermons back to me in a moment of right. conflict. So, um, you know, Gail, if you want to do that, like you're a pastor, you can make up your own decisions uh, for yourself. So I, I trust you on that. But in my home, like I was like, yeah, you, you can't do that to me because I'm not nearly as good of a person <laughs> as a preacher that I'm supposed to be. So yeah, that's, that's a lot. I feel you. Yeah. There was, um, oh, um, he he lives up in your area, uh, Pacific Northwest, um, A.J. Swoboda. He wrote a book on uh, Sabbath, and he talked about, like, during the writing process of a book on Sabbath, like, he almost gave up his Sabbath practices because he just got so worked up in it. And it seems like, you know, stuff that I've written, I found myself, like, uh, struggling with the very stuff that, like, I'm writing about. But I feel like that's, like, the honest like creative process. Like if you're not like having to deal with the, like the conflict that like the book addresses, then you're not really like giving your, your readers really much of anything that's real. And one of the things I like about your book, I like, it is very autobiographical. Like your story is woven throughout the middle of it. So it's not just Mm -hmm. some ideas that you've gathered as a academic or as a pastor, but it's like, this is like your real life story in the middle of these pages. Yeah, I mean, I think for both of us, like, I mean, part of the reason why we even decided to do a marriage book was, I mean, when we thought about the idea of doing a book together, the question was, what are the things that together we, where we seem to, you know, people seem to be drawn to us, you know, for, for whatever reason. Um, And, you know, we thought about like couples that we've walked with over and over again. And, you know, we're both teachers and we'll throw out principles and histories and all that kind of stuff. And, but I think for mm-hmm. both of us, whether it's in Gail's preaching and teaching, whether it's in my teaching in the classroom, we're always struck again and again by how people, it's actually, it's always the stories that people remember. Yeah. Um, it's always the stories that people learn the more, the most from. Um, and I think that was for us kind of just trying to lean into this idea that, you know, we're not an expert on marriage, actually. We're just an ex- expert on our marriage. Um, mm-hmm. But we really do believe that our marriage if people walk with us, that they might find a little pieces, a little piece of themselves in it. Um, and in doing so, maybe have the courage to figure out how, what it means for them to tell their story and lean, in, and lean into their story. Yeah, that's good. That's good. You guys got married pretty early. Uh, my wife and I got married when we were 20. You guys were right around that age? 21. Correct? 21. So we were much, much younger. You were older and much wiser. My, uh, I did... Uh, stand-up comedy for a summer and uh like my opening joke was i got married when i was 20 which is another way of saying that i grew up religious and (laughs) yeah it 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 worked it worked but like it's 
it's the, the joke works because it's a very peculiar and odd situation that most people don't actually have anymore. And I assume, especially in the Pacific Northwest, the the age of the average person getting married is probably 10 years after that or close to it. And so when you describe a marriage that starts very early, just like mine, do you find that to be something that distance yourself because your story is so different from other people? Um, I think this is the way I often put it because we're around so many um, older couples and single folks. And that's been the, that's been the hardest thing for, for me as a pastor is the relatability with single folks who are well into their thirties and even forties here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but I will also say often that our, our coming together also seems a little bit unique in the sense that um, we weren't necessarily looking. So it's not like we were ring before spring wanting to get married. You know, even in the book, I all, I said that I didn't actually want to get married till I was like 30. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my mom had just died. Brian's father had just died. And we were actually matched by a mutual friend for the purpose of um, Brian helping me to grieve. And he was a total stranger, lived in a different state. Right. Uh-huh. And just by that, by that contact and conversation, growing to know each other and, and eventually love each other. Um, uh-huh. So a relationship that really wasn't um, anticipated, especially on my end um, and under peculiar circumstances that I wouldn't uh-huh. wish upon anybody. Um, so I think in that sense, we are a little bit different. Um, than some of the folks I know that do get married earlier, but it is, it has been um, both beautiful and a little bit distant, I think in, in, in the context of uh, ministry for me, in the sense that I think people do look to us still because there has been a longevity of relationship and, and tethering and growing together and journeying. So I do feel like there's a lot of folks who respect us and honor our relationship and want to glean things from us. Um, but then at the same time, it's a constant navigating of, Hey, I I also recognize, I don't necessarily know how you feel, um, in your singleness or in your dating life. Yeah. You you described, uh, how your situation is not one you would wish on anyone else. And the way you guys Mm -hmm. got connected, it's, you know, phone calls from, you know, hours away because you both are people at a young age, lost your parent or lost a parent. How do you think the way that you guys got introduced and like sharing grief together altered or affected the relationship? It, it, from my perspective, I would imagine like it fast forwarded a lot of the connection in a way that most of us are just, Hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And what's your favorite color? But like, you guys are talking about something that is extremely like significant. So maybe I'll ask Brian first, like, how do you think that differentiated your relationship from many others who don't start in that level of um, significance? Yeah, well, I think like the combination of of this of a, of a really profound personal point of contact of 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 having lost someone, you know, immediately gives you something to kind of talk about. And I'm not a kind of person that, you know, I don't do small talk and that kind of stuff. So in some ways, immediately it was a place for us to to connect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, but I think what it also did though was even throughout our relationship was, you know there was no kind of, there was no outlet 
you know, no, nothing, no kind of spigot where you could kind of release the pressure and go to your family um, because like it was just going to be a lot easier for us. Have, neither of us having, cause I lost my mom when I was 25. Um, and then obviously her, her, her dad um, had disowned her. And so, you know, so we really didn't have anywhere to go. So whenever we had really hard times um, and we also knew what it meant to grieve, you know, to have lost something, um, all we had before us was to be with one another was mm-hmm. to work it out um, to have faith and to trust one another. Um, and I think that that's even kind of coming back to your earlier question about, you know, some folks that get married later, I, they have a memory of themselves before they get married. Um, mm-hmm. They have a memory of a, of a life that, you know, might have not been great, but they have a sense of themselves as a whole person. Um, and I imagine that that's really hard to kind of let go of when it gets really tough because you're like, oh, it used to be better. I could at least be by myself. Yep. Whereas Gail and I, we have, we have no memory of that. We have no, you know, so all we have is one another. And, um, and I think sometimes what that means, the way the grief kind of comes out, I think sometimes is in just, I think we just have a really profound fear of losing one another. Um, you know, if somebody's a little late, you know, like it's always oh, like wow. when, you, when you land, you like, you're always calling to make sure that the other person landed safely. Um, and so I think that that kind of permeates a lot of our relationship as we, as we kind of continue our life together. Wow. I I never thought of how that sort of like perpetual anxiety of, of, of losing mm-hmm. someone would, uh, would stay with y'all. Gail, you're nodding your head. I mean, that's obviously something mm-hmm. you've experienced as well. Uh, what is that like for you? Uh, yeah. I mean, everything Brian just said, I would also say there's something about death an unexpected death that changes perspective on what's important and what matters in life. Hmm. Um, and especially when you encounter it at an early age, um, that some of the things that I hear some couples arguing about and bickering about, I mean, just it just doesn't matter at the end of the yeah. day. And I would say this fear of losing um, somebody is real. And I think even, you know, I'm, I'm 46, I'm going to be 47 this year. Uh, my mother found out she had cancer when she was 47. So uh, b- wow. you better believe that I have that in my head. And I've been telling myself mm-hmm. ever since that I'm going to outlive my mom. So this is a really significant year for me. I've, you know, Brian can attest to the fact that I went to the doctor. I'm getting all my checkups all of a sudden. Um, and so, there, I mean, there's something about life and wanting to live and wanting to live it wholly and fully, that's real for folks who've grieved, who've experienced loss and death, um, especially, you know, in their immediate family, That's um, that I think changes us, yeah. hopefully for the better. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. And I, I'm glad that has been y'all's experience, and it's a great example for others who have and continue to experience grief, uh, especially early in, in a relationship and the way that you guys have navigated that. And, you know, Brian, one of the things you just mentioned a second ago is that, um, uh, you know, having, uh, and even you mentioned this in the book, that, like, your family of origins didn't maybe provide you with a blueprint or a model of success for what you guys would determine is a successful relationship with y'all. Uh, Brian, I think you were like eight when your parents got divorced. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Gail, as Brian mentioned, the uh, the being disowned uh, by a father, like, that's, that's pretty tough. And I, I don't know the statistics off my head, but it seems like 
you know, kids who grow up in homes in which they're a divorce uh, seem to probably have a higher likelihood of themselves experiencing divorce. What are ways that people can can cannot allow that statistic to become their reality? What are ways that people can can choose a different like relationship for themselves other than the one that was modeled for them growing up? Yeah, well, I think for for Gail and I, and we talk about this a little bit. Like our our kind of first rule was, you know, just don't repeat the jacked up stuff that we experience. I mean, it's like just as a as a baseline, and we would actually have conversations like, what was what was really hard about growing up? Like, what were the things that were really frustrating about us, or what were the patterns that we saw? in our in our families and our family systems okay whatever those were don't do that like that's just kind of like the first part did of you, it did you literally like list out and write like name those things well not oh, not yeah. list but well we talked about it yeah we talked about them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and so you go and so then you start like that's a baseline um yeah. and then but then the problem of course is like it's just because you name it doesn't mean that you avoid it Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so then there's a kind of certain level of introspection to say, OK, what are the patterns that we that we want to create and what is it about us personally? What is it about like us together that begins to reproduce some some different kinds of patterns that that we don't feel like are as, as healthy or not? Um, but one of our I think one of our kind of weird rules, and this is especially this was especially true even when our kids were are going into middle school was just like, do no harm. Like, we mm. don't we don't know, like, how to be perfect, but we do know how to, like, we hopefully know how not to, like, irreparably harm anybody. <laughs> and so what does it mean to, like, try to, like, trust, care for as much as you can, avoid the really big things, make sure that someone always feels loved, you know, and if there's a pattern that evolved, that if there's a bad pattern that comes out of too much love, then that's, then that's okay. Yeah. But um, but do the best you can to love um, one another and to listen to one another, to in- have some introspection and self-reflection so that you know that even, the, even if the ways that you think you're loving are not being received, not being heard um, mm-hmm. in ways that are helpful, then sit down and begin to reevaluate. And so, so for us, it's every, I mean, we don't like to have a, a sit down every six months or so, but, but because our relationship started in conversation, I mean, that's all we had were phone calls, like two, three, four, five hour phone calls. And so we're always talking about everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think in those ways, that's kind of where a lot of those that self-reflection is coming out of. This is how I'm feeling. This is what I'm frustrated with. These are patterns I'm seeing in you that like are not that helpful to me. Um, and so kind of having that kind of constant movement helps us then to kind of figure out what a new baseline should be and what health looks like. Because reality is that health doesn't look like health. What's what's healthy in one moment is not always healthy later. And mm-hmm. so it always yeah. requires reevaluation and, and conversation along the way. Yeah. One of the things I thought was really like humorous about your story is it did start with just phone calls, which I imagine that kind of dates you and I as like what generation <laughs> we're from, if it's phone calls, not like FaceTime or whatever. But uh, in the book, you know, Gail, you talk about how, uh, or you, you both talk about you're driving, like you're going to Thanksgiving for like one of y- y'all's family. And yeah. the conversation gets awkward because like you you see each other. And so you look straight ahead and you just like act like it's a phone call where you're not looking at each other. And then the conversation gets, gets easier. But as you guys have tried to maintain that sort of like 
uh, strong, like health, healthy communication, it changes over time. How, how do you guys continue to do that so that you, you don't like replicate patterns that you find to be less than uh, ideal, Gail? Huh, that's actually a good question and something that we're continually working on as life changes and ebbs and flows and as our kids reach different um, stages mm-hmm. of their lives as well. And um, even as we're navigating through a pandemic, what does communication look like um, when one mm-hmm. person really needs like constant extroverting and then the other person just really needs some time to themselves? And it's 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 a conversation we actually had this week. Um, I need more conversation from you. We are having conversations. What do you mean? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you mean? You're here all the time. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. So, so Gail, you're um, more extroverted. Brian is more introverted. I am. And so That's right. there, there are different levels of what you need. Uh, Brian, as you were, like in the book, it described like how you like... Uh, like physically got sick or something, or like you would, you would drift away or whatever when there are like big social events coming up. Mm-hmm. Like I get that, like that makes perfect sense. And so you guys have had a like dialogue about how even that basic um, introvert extrovert difference like appears in your relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's the bigger, that's the bigger conflict, ongoing conflict and, really? and navigating each other and reading each other in the, mo- hmm. in any given moment. Right. Um, But I would say just on sheer communication and having conversations together, I think that's at the core of our relationship. Um, Whether it's phone call, when we're traveling, it's constantly just talking about everyday things um, Mm -hmm. that just kind of keeps us together. And that's how you know, that's how we know when something's off is when we're not talking. Yeah, that makes sense. Even if we're present and we're not talking that's how we know that there's something off. Hmm. Yeah. It's like in, uh, like to use a high school football metaphor, cause I live in Texas and that's what all my metaphors are. Like if you're, <laughs> if your football coach stops yelling at you, it's not a good sign. It's like, it means they've given right. up on you. If there's not communication, whether it's like tense or like just jovial, like there still needs to be communication. Like that's a healthy sign of any relationship, especially True. like over the years it changes because we change. One of the things that like I've always said about people who get married early, like, like y'all did and my wife and I did is that like, you don't have all the life skills. You don't understand like how to pay the bills and you don't understand like some basic stuff about life, but you learn all this stuff together. And so you don't like know how to do life, but you know the person you're going to do it with and you just kind of figure yourself out and life out together at the same time. But part of like any relationship is that we're always changing. We think we know who we are, but we like, we we don't really. Uh, A couple months ago, I was talking to a group of college students and I quoted uh, John Mayer, um, because I'm a, a white 40 year old man and I have to do that contractually, <laughs> but he has this line in song where he goes, I've, uh, it was something like, uh, I've been in love with this woman, seven different women, but it's all been you. And like everyone laughed cause they thought it was like the, like the trite, like stereotype of all oh, women are changed and they don't know who they are. But it like the, the comment is actually far more insightful, like that we all change. Like every one of us, we become a different person over the years. And as you guys have changed so much oh, since you were 20, like, how do you make space for the other person to grow into who they need to become without feeling like that means like they're leaving you or they're getting distant from you? Like, how do you create space for the other person to continue to grow? Well, I mean, I think a lot of ways, like, I mean, that that's literally the conversation that we've had because I, the, A, you have the pandemic, which 
But, you know, in a weird way, everyone's kind of become a different version of themselves in the midst of all of this, yeah. whether it's dealing with the anxiety, you know, Gail goes into like beast mode, like, let's like, let's fix this thing. I go into like, let me crawl into a corner and just like <laughs> paralysis, uh, you know, but That's then, real. you know, but Gail became lead pastor um, of her job. I took on a new job out of state, which then changed my work, all of my kind of work rhythms um and and that's really in a way like and then the pandemic hit and so in a lot of ways we're actually and then all of our kids moved out and then all of our kids moved back in um and so what's actually happened is we've like i think those kind of old patterns and ways of connecting all kind of got reshuffled um Mm -hmm. and in some ways we're actually right now just trying to figure out oh what does connection look like in this version of life that we're in and who we are. And I think there's also something about like, and I think maybe this is, this might be the case for you too, is like, you know, there's so much change that happens when you're, you know, in your twenties, even into your thirties, but there's a kind of settling that feels like that's starting to happen as we're kind of hitting our mid forties where like, you know, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of good with who I am right now. I'm not, hmm. I'm not trying to change as much as I want. And Gail's yeah. like, you know, this is who I am. And now like, we're having to have some really hard conversations about, oh, wait, we're not like these, you know, little 25 year old kids that have our whole life in front of us. Um, you know, we actually are much more certain about what we want and what we don't want. Um, and so in a way, we're having to kind of almost learn each other again in this, like for this, as we're kind of going into the second kind of life of uh, marriage together. Um, I don't, I don't know if we're doing it well. I hope we are. Yeah. And I would also say, I think um, a lot of folks or partners who've been the primary caregiver for when your kids are younger. um, I think for me, it's ebbed and flowed just based on vocation access. Right. And we're now at empty nest Right. And so when I think about when my kids were younger, I was kind of like the one who was primarily home, working part time to make sure that they're cared for. And then when they got a little bit older, was working full time and like finding my, you know, finding my lane and feeling empowered in my vocation. Um, So then we change in those ways as well. And now in this season where our kids are grown and our youngest is now a senior in high school, we're imagining my goodness, like we're pretty much going to be childless. And that's its own dynamic, right? I just bought a two-seater car that only has two (laughs) doors where like my kids won't fit in the back. Too bad, you know? But then I'm like, (laughs) wait, that's so inhospitable. Like, oh, I don't know. Like I can't drive the whole family anywhere. Um, So, so much identity. And I think I'm in my midlife crisis and trying to navigate what that means and what is me what does looking out for me look like now that I don't have to look out for, for other people? Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of that kind of identity shifts as well. Yeah. And freedom. Every time someone talks about their kids moving out, I hear a lot of people like, Oh, I can't like, that's so exciting. I can't wait. I'm terrified of that. Like I, I know that I will change. And everyone always says like, at some point you'll want them to, to go on with their life. And maybe it's just the way that like life hands us these graces where I can't imagine that being a good thing. I know maybe 10 years down the road, I will be at a different place. Um, mm-hmm. But again, like that's a, 
what I can imagine be like a, a massive change for my wife and I to go from like everything revolves around raising uh, like our kids and like this is the center of our existence to all of a sudden like we're going to be different people then. Mm. What, how would you coach us up on like preparing for the inevitable change as life continues to look different for us? And, and how do you like coach us up on how to like survive that and to thrive during that time? Mm. Well, I would say, I mean, one of the biggest things is, and, and I think Gail and I have been big believers in this is that, uh, and, this, and this will sound kind of bad to say, but our kids are not the, the center of our world. Mm-hmm. Um, they are, they are sojourners with us. Mm-hmm. Um, they come alongside of us. They help. They pitch in. Um, they all know that we'll do whatever we can to make them successful and, and to be happy um, and whatever success looks like or support them. But, but they're, they're as much along for the ride as we are. Hmm. Um, we're a family that's called, um, and, and they're called into being, you know, of some good in the world in some form or fashion. Um, and we all help one another. We all support one another. Um, we all have a part to play. Um, and so I think in that way, um, what it's also allowed is for Gail and I to be able to say, you know, if we're all kind of in this together, what does it mean for us to be whole people? Um, mm-hmm. And so whether Gail will always oftentimes say like her hobby is her job, like she just because this is the first season in her life that she's gotten a chance to really throw herself into it. Um, I love like I've I've discovered riding bikes and taking pictures and and riding and and oddly enough, our boys are very interested in the things that we do. Like so it. Mm-hmm. I realized when they when they were like in middle school and especially my oldest who himself like all of our kids are really creative they always wanted to know what it was that we were working on and in some ways because I was about something they could also be about something yeah. um mm-hmm. and it's so and the few times that we ever like I I grew up playing soccer um and I had big dreams for all of my kids to play soccer um to be able to play club soccer from like you know from 4 years old and up and and my oldest son wasn't wasn't about it. My youngest son wasn't really about it. But my middle son, he was a phenomenal he's a phenomenal athlete, and so wanted to play club soccer. So I was all excited every time like the kit would come. I'd open it up like more excited than he was. I almost got, I almost mm-hmm. got myself a matching one, um, and I was like, <laughs> oh, it's time it's time to go to practice. Let's go. Like, do you want to work out in the backyard? And I actually realized, and after a while, he, I realized it was so, it was actually, I didn't realize. He told me, he's like, dad, like, I have to have a hard conversation with you. I'm like, well, what? What's going on? You know, something He's like, I don't want to play soccer anymore. And I'm like, uh, 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 he's like, I just kind of want to play old? my guitar. How he was, was 11. He? he was 11. Oh, wow. Hmm. Um, he's like, I just want to play rec soccer. I just want to play with my friends. Um, and I'm so proud of him that he had the courage to say that. But I also realized it was really convicting that moment because his his being the center of my world was too much pressure. It was too confining. Mm. You know, it was too too many expectations to fill. And it wasn't good for him. And it definitely wasn't going to be good for me. Um, yeah. And so in that moment, it was actually really freeing to say, oh, wait, actually, the best way for you to thrive is for me to thrive. I'm here for you whenever you need me. But I'm also gonna I'm also gonna love some things that aren't you, um, because this is what it means to be a whole person. Gotcha. So what I hear you saying is you just love your kids less than I do. 
Um, that's that's the answer. <laughs> Just and kidding. And less than I do. Because <laughs> I, I would you, be the. I love them and I see their giftings, and I want them to thrive. But I'm not going to lie. I I literally tell them all the time. I am going to live with you at some point. And so just prepare your homes to have a room for me and dad. If dad dies early, then, you know, I'm going to move in with you. Mm-hmm. Like, I wouldn't mind if we had a little compound and we lived close to each other. And partly, I think that comes from not having family. Hmm. Right. And that, like when I get older, I just imagine my kids being close, my grandkids. I just want to be close to family and I think that's a really deep desire of mine. Now, I don't want them breathing down my neck. Have your mm-hmm. own space, but I want to be close. Yeah. So one of the things you write in the book is uh, is addressing, I think, kind of the idolatry of family, which uh, like mm-hmm. I'm tiptoeing around. And I say that as someone who is now the pastor of my wife's home church. And uh, I live between my in-laws and my sister-in-law <laughs> and her husband. So like it's... Okay, I know where I'm standing on this. I'm, I'm not the, the expert on this. But you write in the book about like one of the, uh, let me just read the quote. Uh, While we are trying to hold out the possibilities and beauty of marriage, we also want you to hear it again. Marriage is not the be all and end all. Marriage is one point in a constellation of relationships that make up our social fabric. Now, maybe Gail, as a pastor, you can answer this question. But whenever I, I, I want to preach and talk about marriage, I always feel like there's a tendency to idealize like marriage and family as the highest calling of the church. Like we're just here to help you and your family when Jesus doesn't really seem to prioritize the kingdom of God below families. How do you balance like the value of family that's important, that it's significant, marriage is important and it's significant without making it the end all be all? I actually think you should ask Brian. He's got a beautiful answer for this one. Okay. Well, the good doctor, let's hear it. Well, that was that was the quote. <laughs> you read you read the answer before you asked the question. Oh, okay. Well, no, but yeah. I mean, so I'll I'll, I'll elaborate though. Um, okay, deal. So yeah, I mean, I think part of part of what we've, I think part of this idea of the family. I mean, it has a kind of history, right? It it just it didn't come out of out of anywhere because lots of cultures have lots of different ways of organizing familial life and what a family looks like can is can be like aunties and uncles and grandmas and cousins and adopted cousins and um, so this idea of the kind of nuclear family you know mom dad two and a half kids little house little piece of property um, that's actually a fairly recent invention right mm-hmm. um, that's trying to solidify, a certain idea of quote unquote civilization that actually is grounded in a certain notion of whiteness, frankly, um, that kind of works over against notions of immigration, for example, like, Oh, like all of these kids like filled up in the house um, or the legacies of slavery, which actually disintegrated like what marriage could look like. um, And then people, and then black folk were actually ridiculed for not having traditional kind of family structures um, can you so flush think, it, can you flush that out more like how does yeah, slavery yeah. well so what would happen is you would have um so marriage was 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 technically forbidden because they were property right um but but they would but black folk would would still find ways of connecting the you know, this is where the kind of the tradition of jumping over the broom for example um as part of the marriage ceremonies but then 
So they found ways of, of being committed to one another. Um, and yet the system, either through rape or through selling off children or selling off um, men or women, were constantly breaking up families, right? And so what ended up happening is as like new kids arrived on the plantation, um, as a new man, as a new woman arrived, those like the kids would get adopted in a sense. They get taken care of, you know, that or the the man might find fall in love with someone new or the woman might fall in love with someone new. Um, and so all of a sudden, like you have these very kind of, for lack of a better word, convoluted kinship systems that are operating. Um, and, but then what happens is kind of white patriarchal society says, oh, look, you don't really value marriage because you don't have a husband and a wife, two kids. You have all these cousins, you've got like, broken marriages, like, look at all the single mothers, like all of that is a system that was created by white supremacy, slaveholding society. And then yet, and then the consequences of that society were then leveraged against black families as not having ideal, as, as not having a kind of ideal civilized family. Um, so, so all of that to say that part of what ends up happening is like, when we say, oh, wait a second, the family, the kind of typical family system has a history, is its own kind of idolatry. It is, in fact, actually the idolatry of a kind of white civilization, for lack of a better, to be just real mm. blunt about it. Um, and so what, what it also then excludes, though, are all of these really deep, profound ways of loving and being related to one another and being for one another that that can happen in a marital covenanted relationship, but also happen in friendships, that also happen in cooperative housing, that also happen in extended families, um, in adopted families, um, in ways that are really beautiful and powerful, that each come with their own challenges, their own um, and their own benefits to society. And once we begin to begin to kind of understand, oh, wait a second, this family system isn't the only way of doing relationship. That's not the only way that God, that God's life, the triune God's life does not look like a family, right? Um, it is a kind of interpenetrating relationality of difference that are bound mm -hmm. and loving and oriented towards the other. That's not mother, that's not father, that's not children. It's just those who exist for the other, um, bound up in one another's life. Um, and all relationality participates in that. A marriage relationship is just one way of existing inside of that relationship that has certain benefits, has certain challenges. Um, but, you know, for the single auntie who like takes care of her, of her sister's children, that's a special kind of gift too. Um, you know, for two friends that live, you know, who've been best friends since the time they were four to the time they were 80, that's a special relationship, you know, in some ways, maybe even more intimate than the relationship between two people in, in marriage. Um, and so I think the more that we kind of create space to appreciate those relationships and talk about them, then we actually all learn and grow from them as well. Hmm. Hmm. How do you think we all can learn and grow from valuing. I assume that was a, like you weren't waving off your husband, Gail, or something on your screen. You're fanning no, I'm him down. Waving like, at him. Pre preach you on. Know? That's what that that was. Okay. <laughs> That's for yes. Yeah. If, how how do you think Pentecostal coming up? I was wondering. I was like, yeah, I'm Church of Christ. We don't we don't do that kind of stuff. But uh, 
Yeah. No, we just sit down. We're very quiet. Um, but Gail, if, if you're trying to encourage people to, to value these type of relationships in a church, like how mm-hmm. can a church support this, um, this more expansive view of what family is? Yeah, I think, um, I will, I'll, let me just make it personal for our church. Um, we have a very predominantly younger congregation, a lot of single folks, a lot of young professionals, a lot of young families. Um, we're very intentional and mindful that the historically pastors and church leaders have often uh, tailored events, ministry opportunities around couples and families, and even using the language of this is a family event where we've had so many of our single folks say, well, does that include me? Um, So we're just very intentional with our words, right? That this is for um, individuals and families. This is for our single folks and our married couples. Um, Taking the time and care um, to be inclusive in our language as well. And also just being aware of how harmful the church historically has been to those who aren't married, who are divorced, who are widowed, who are single um, in our midst. And I think that's that's for us as leaders, as pastors, our, our work to do um, mm-hmm. and our care for the people that we lead. Can you flesh out the way that the church has been harmful to those who don't have a quote unquote, like traditional family. Uh, I know some of my listeners are like, I, I, I've never seen that. I've never mm-hmm. experienced that. Um, but I agree with what you're saying. So maybe you could kind of expand on that a little bit more. Yeah. Um, you know, we had a, a single woman come up to me once and said, you know, I know we've had premarital classes offered. We've had marriage seminars offered, but when's the last time we actually had a conversation or a panel on singleness? No. And I, yeah. I didn't have an answer. Yeah. Or um, when's the last time we had a pastor who was single? When did we hire um, and we celebrated their singleness? Um, and so it's all these little things that those of us who are married, who have the privilege of being partnered, um, sometimes we have gaps in these areas and we think our lives are normative. Um and that's what I mean by just being good listeners, being intentional, um, being okay with people telling us where our gaps are and yep. um, pivoting. It's yep. interesting because, I mean, I think even in a lot of the, the small ways that I've seen um, is, you know, on the one hand, you have, you know, single folk over and over and over again uh, kind of being told, oh, so when are you going to get married? Oh, or like, yeah. or like. This is, I know a great person that she should, you know, that they're always kind of being pointed towards um, a kind of romantic relationship as what they, as, as something that they should be moving towards. And then their relationship to the church is oftentimes, oh, well, like you're single, so you can serve. So then the families have all of these services that are for them, you know, children's ministry, premarital, blah, blah, blah. And then the ways that single folk plug in is to serve. Right. Because you don't have yeah. a relationship. You don't have somebody at home. And so so those things kind of build up over time. And one of the things I, I love about what Gail does at church is like even something like Advent, you know, we have, you know, the four, you know, you like the five candles every time. Oftentimes, at least the, the Southern Baptist Church that I came to Christ in, you know, whenever you did it, you always had the respect, the most respectable families 
lighting the candle with their kids all around the all around the thing. Yeah. But for, what Gail always does, you have sometimes you have the single mother, sometimes you have the single woman, you have the same gender lo- loving couple. Um, so there's those are all moments where they can become kind of icons, right? To say, this is who we are. Um, this is who is participating in the life of God. They're all they're all invitations. And so whether it's prayer, scripture reading, you know, awards, um, there's so many opportunities to lift up the diversity that a congreg- that makes up a congregation. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I got a <clears throat> excuse me, a couple quick questions before I let you guys get out of here that um definitely want to follow up on. Um kind of tangential. Gail, yeah, you said your first church uh that you worked at um was in Philadelphia. And it was an all-white church. And mm-hmm. uh, for, for my listeners, you're, uh, you're uh, Korean, and, right? You, yeah. I said that. I was like, that's that's right, isn't it? I don't want to get that one wrong. Um, <laughs> what was it like to be um, the only person on staff in an all-white church when you yourself are not white? What's that experience like? Um, challenging. Uh, isolating. Um, not only was I the only non-white staff, I was the only woman that wasn't a secretary um, in a predominant leadership position, which is not uncommon, but um, it's, it's a unique space where I think at the time I was 21 years old, between 21 and 20. So I was young. My first Mm -hmm. call, my first church um, job and just struggling with my identity. Like, who am I? Like, how am I supposed to talk? So that was also a thing is um, I spoke with a lot of slang and it was just nobody could understand me. And um, hmm. there's a lot of cultural realities there, too, that I had to, you know, kind of figure out who am I? Who am I going to be? How do I present? A lot of code switching just to make it and be respected and to be heard. Um, and so often it, when we're younger, we just are quiet, we take it, we adjust, um, to keep the job, um, to not feel like we stick out. But I think at this point in my, in my career, you know, take it or leave it. This is who I am, um, which is a lot more freeing. Um, but I would say that was my experience was isolating. Um, I was young, I was learning, growing. Yeah. What could a all white church do to uh, make the experience uh, as ideal as possible? That's a hard one for me to answer. I would, I would maybe throw that back to you, Luke, and be like, "What could an all white church do when they hire somebody that doesn't look like them?" Well, um, I, well, I, I was hoping you would help me how to do my job better. Uh, that's that's. <laughs> Well, no, I, think, I mean, hard. one of the things when I've when I've worked with congregations and 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 pastors in training and seminary situations, part of it is that is whether or not a congregation you've prepared a congregation for that moment or not, right? So so if if a person of color comes and then that's when you decide, oh, now we're going to start talking about race. Now we're going to start talking about whiteness. Now we're going to start thinking about systems, systemic realities and, and norms and cultures, at that point, you've already set up the person to, you've set up, you've set the system up already to crush that person because essentially what you're doing is you're asking them to bear all of that weight. 
Um, whereas now, I mean, especially these days, there are so many resources to think critically about whiteness, about structural racism, about the land that a, a church building's on, about the kind of norms and cultures, um, lots of consultants that you can kind of bring in to say, what are the systems of whiteness that are functioning here? And they'll say, it's everywhere. And you're like, but I need you to name it. Um, mm -hmm. And then once you do that, then you can begin to say, okay, what is it that we specifically need this person to do and not just the person's body, but what are their skill sets, right? And how do they yeah. fit into this specific skill set? And then how is it that, you know, you as a lead pastor, how can you set them up well, support them, in a sense, shield them from all of the inevitable, as much of, as much stuff as you can so that, so that they can do their job well. Um, so there's mm -hmm. a lot of pre-work. Um, and then a lot of very specific placement work that needs to, to to be done when you're already when you're when the person is ready to get onboarded. Yeah, no, that's good. That's really helpful. Uh, one of the resources that's been helpful for a lot of people is uh, Austin Channing Brown's book. Um, oh, I just forgot the I'm name of her here. book. Uh, yeah, I'm still here. I'm and still one here. of the things that she says in the uh, thank you. One of the things that she says in her book is that her experience is that she didn't really feel like she was black enough, um, and. I think she was like visiting like um, maybe a parent she didn't live with and she would go there and leave a predominantly uh, or a more white area and go to a predominantly black area. And so she didn't feel like she was like black enough to fit in there. Brian, you mentioned in the book, there's something about that is similar or analogous to maybe your experience. Um, you also mentioned that you like country music and alternative rock, which I don't think that's helping anything. Um, but um, when you say country, though, let me just, before I get to the question, what kind of country are we talking about here? Is it like Garth Brooks? Or so, what, are we, what are we going with? Why, well, first, I need to qualify this by saying it was a phase. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a still, I'm, I'm not, I don't still listen to it. But, okay, all right. So just, just to qualify. Okay, it was a phase. Was, it's a phase. Okay. It was like, I had a Vince Gill, Faith Hill kind of phase. Mm. Okay, well, yeah, you, you know, know what? A um, little crossover, whatever. but... Hey, whatever works. You know, my, my grandma has a big thing for Vince Gill and, um, you know, I get it. Like I had a thing for Amy Grant. So like, we're all connected here. Um, but you, you say you like, you didn't feel like you're like black enough. Now your wife referred to you, um, as a nerdy athlete. Uh, she also referred to you as Carlton from Fresh Prince, which in some ways like Carlton kind of represents, um, and this is kind of above my pay grade, but in some ways, like a stereotype of what black is not, which seems to be kind of a, a derogatory comment for the experience of what blackness is, that it's not just one thing, it's many things. It's not just Will, it's also Carlton. But maybe you could flesh out more about what it means to not feel like black enough or to feel like your wife is... In the book, didn't you say she, she was more, quote unquote, black than you? Uh, in, in lots of ways. In lots of ways, I think she still is. But... Um... But I think part of it is just, I mean, part of it is, is just this idea of understanding how race forms us, um, and so especially when you're young, right? You you want a kind of certainty, you want a kind of placidness. Um, you have very little bandwidth for um, for variation, right? Um, and so growing up in Maryland, you know, the black kids all kind of sat together um, in the in the cafeteria on one side. All the white kids sat together on the other side. Um, my hair at the time was kind of just real straight, maybe a little wavy. Um, I was lighter than my brother. So like, so what ends up happening is this, well, the way that identity works is you're kind of using all these reference points, right? And then you try to use all these refer reference points to kind of locate yourself. 
And, Mm -hmm. you know, especially when I was younger, as I located myself and my father wasn't, you know, super present in my life, um, you know, all of the all of the reference points pointed like it seemed to point me to that I was not as black as some of these kids, Um, you know, because I didn't have either the I wasn't I didn't talk like them. I didn't know what the musical references were. My hair definitely didn't look like them. I was way lighter. Um, But I also knew I was like, but I'm not white either and so there was a kind of a kind of sense of in-betweenness that was always functioning and i think part of that is just part of trying to grow up young you know like youth have very you know very clear like differentiations um but when i got to duke though it was really i think this was no mistake that was actually in the south um, I got invited to like a fish fry or something. And I, I think I literally said like, I don't know, am I black enough to go to a fish fry? Um, and then that was actually where I saw the really beautiful reversal of the, of the one drop rule. So the one drop rule was, was, t- was used um, in the Jim Crow, especially as a, as a disqualifying. So you, if, a, if you had one drop of black, you could not drink at the white water fountain. You could not go to the library. You could not marry a white person. Right. But um, in that moment, though, when I went in, at Duke, it was also this reversal of it. Because you have one drop, you're for us. Um, you're yeah. part of us. Um, but then there's also a responsibility that comes alongside that. Like if you're part of us, which means you also have to be part of you have to be for us, too. Um, and so what it meant was that I had to learn what that story meant to learn the work that my body was doing. Um, and I think one of the most kind of most profound moments of, of recognizing that even though I may not feel or might not have felt a certain kind of way, you know, when I was a, when I was a, t- a teaching assistant and I had black students in my section, they saw me as black they, mm. and they needed me and I needed to be for them. And when I, you know, when I taught my first, when I, when I taught in college and I had numerous students for whom I was the, their first black professor, like ever, like their first black teacher, you realize, oh, wait a second, this is more than just how I feel. It's also about who I need to be for and what the work that my body does in the hmm. world. Um, and then you just begin to learn the history, you begin to learn that you see people pick up pictures of people like Du Bois and Langston Hughes, and you're like, oh, they had the same hue as I did. They had the same hair as I hmm. did. Um, and then you begin to learn this variation and the beautiful variations of what blackness can look like, um, hmm. which is you know, part, of, part of the journey. Well, that's great. That's great. Well, uh, thank you guys so much for the time. Uh, thank you for sharing like so much of your own story and being so honest about it. And uh, again, the fact that y'all wrote a book about marriage during a pandemic with your kids back home in one house, <laughs> like that's a testament to how, uh, how good the material is. So well done on that. Mm. <laughs> thank you so much, Luke. Thanks, Luke. Yeah. yeah, great meeting you guys. Great meeting you too.